This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what life was like before it, after it, and where they are now. And today's story comes to us from Brave Magazine, where a gentleman named Ken McKay powerfully wrote about his personal journey, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was 10 years old when I took my first sip of beer. It was all very innocent. I was at a cookout, and in those days, guys would share a sip of beer with their son or, you know, with a nephew or something. By the time I was 12, though, I had my first drunk blackout experience, 12 years old. I didn't, you know, I didn't even really like the taste of beer, but as soon as I drank it, I knew why people drank it. Alcohol's effect on me was immediate. It made me feel comfortable, and it made me feel like I was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was downhill from there. In middle school and high school, I spent most of my time learning how to get drunk and get away with it. And I got really good at it. And as time went on, things got worse and worse. Over the years, I, I would surround myself with friends who liked drinking as much as I did. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, our behavior was often dangerous. I got into quite a bit of trouble. Drunkenly crashed cars and hanging out with dangerous people. Uh, waking up in strange places like some stranger's house or someone's yard or a park, even jail. No one was hurt, thank God. I mean, I was hurt. I got drunk and fell off a roof and broke my hip once, but no one else was physically hurt. I hurt a lot of people's feelings, and I lied to a lot of people. The only thing really consistent about me at that time was complete selfishness. Looking back drinking caused the lowest points of my life. And all of this trouble was no one else's fault. I only had myself to blame. It didn't come from some desire to get in trouble. It came from doubting myself. I convinced myself and everyone else that I wasn't very smart, that I was the dumb kid, Uh, That lowered other people's expectations of me, and then that would give me the excuse to be lazy and not challenge myself. It gave me the excuse to behave badly, and that behavior destroyed my self-confidence even further. And so at 17, I stopped believing I could finish high school, and I dropped out. We're listening to Ken McKay, and we're talking about turning points, and they can happen in our lives at any point. Older, younger, cancer, alcoholism, a car accident, who knows what. So, Ken, what did you do next? I had nowhere to go, so I went to a recruiting office and I joined the Army. I wanted to get out of town quickly, and so I joined the infantry because that was the quickest way to to get in. Ultimately, I was saved by two things. An old man and a beautiful woman. And I'll tell you more about the woman later, but the old man was Uncle Sam. 
we got to Fort Benning at night and me and the rest of these new soldiers, we signed paperwork and got examined and they gave us some uniforms and we signed some more papers and then they cut off our hair, they shaved our heads and we went to some barracks to get some sleep before we would start this sort of initiating process again. That first night at Fort Benning, I laid in the top bunk of a metal cot and I rubbed the back of my newly shaved head and I kept thinking it's like they say about shark skin, smooth one way and, and rough the other. And I said to myself over and over again, I won't quit. No matter what, I'm not going to quit. I laid there in the dark, rubbing my head, and I thought about my father. And I imagined where he was at that time, what he might be doing, what he might think about me. And I thought about the shame of quitting high school and really running away from troubles. And I knew right then, I had a moment where I knew that years of drinking had dragged me down. And you could sense Ken was turning things around right here. Let's continue with his story. After we were done processing and getting our equipment, we went out to our training battalions and the drill sergeants made us line up in rows and dump all of our belongings that we'd brought with us. And they said, we, you're, you, know, you can't have any contraband and this is an amnesty opportunity to take anything that you might have snuck in here and throw them in the trash and behind us was these steel trash cans. And I was petrified. I didn't know what contraband was. And I wasn't completely sure what they meant by amnesty either. I didn't know what that meant. So I grabbed everything that I had brought with me that the army didn't issue me when we were in processing. And I picked it up and I went and I threw it in one of the trash cans. And a drill sergeant grabbed me from behind and scared the hell out of me. And he yelled at me in my face, envelopes and stationery and stamps are not contraband. Get that stuff out of the trash and get back in line. And so I did so immediately. And that moment has stuck with me in my life because looking back, I see the irony. I was so afraid and so naive. But at the time, I thought I was the coolest guy on the planet. Literally too cool for school. I was afraid of crowds. I thought that everybody knew some secret that I didn't know. I was too insecure to finish high school. And it was a contradiction that I never saw. I was really at that moment the coolest failure going. Still, the Army gave me some confidence and I excelled in the field exam during basic training. I passed each task perfectly and there were around 50 or 60 tasks like setting up a radio, installing a landmine, treating a sucking chest wound and I did all of them perfectly, one after the other. And only a few of us of the 120 or 130 guys in that battalion uh, accomplished that. And for the first time, I was proud of myself. And I began to wonder if I'm actually stupid. And when we come back, more of Ken McKay's story, our Turning Point series. And again, it can happen to any of us. It has happened to any of us. And it will happen more than likely again. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ken McKay's story, when we come back.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our Turning Point series. And Ken McKay sharing his story of starting drinking at 10 years of age, having his first blackout experience at the age of 12, dropping out of high school at 17, and the one place he could go that would become his turning point, the United States military, where it turns out he excelled, leading him to think, Maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought. Let's return to Ken McKay's story. I was deployed to Korea. I spent some time on the demilitarized zone there. And my first sergeant in my, in my battalion in Korea once said to me, you know, McKay, you're a field soldier. I never complained, which in the Army and elsewhere, I've come to learn is a hugely important trait. I would work all day and night. I would always do more than asked. We needed sandbags filled one day while we were up on the DMZ. I stayed when everyone else left to eat and filled bags alone at the bottom of this sandy hill. And one night we had to qualify everybody on a particular weapon and I stayed up all night. Nobody had to ask me. I used night vision to score everyone and coached those through with difficulties. My first sergeant was, you know, he was an experienced soldier, and he knew I'd misbehave if I had free time. That's what he meant by being a field soldier. He took my pass so I couldn't leave base. He, he, he protected me from myself. A Korean lady in the village near our base, it was Camp Hovi, Korea, and she loaned guys money for drinking when your pay was gone for a fee. I went to see her once, and she wouldn't loan me any money. She ignored me, and I wondered why. And sometime later, I found out that my first sergeant had gone to the village and told her to stay away from me and not loan me anything. Again, he was protecting me from myself, and he was one of the best men I ever knew. He knew me when I didn't know myself. He took no excuses. His name was Thomas J. Griffin III, if I could ever thank him, I would. Thomas J. Griffin III I think you just got your thanks. And by the way, he protected me from myself. He took my pass. And my goodness, you can hear the, the, the thankfulness. One of the best men I ever knew. Let's continue. The Army was, it was really great to me. But it didn't stop me from drinking. It didn't cure my, my, my problems or anything. It taught me an important lesson, though. That if I put to my mind to something, there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. When I got out of the Army, I was 20, after three years. I returned home and got a job at a furniture store, and the owner of the place told me I should go to college. I never thought about that. I had finished high school while I was in the Army, so I went to a library in my town, and I got a book on schools, and I applied to those I thought I could get into. I ended up at a small school in North Carolina where... I didn't even know if I could pass a class, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the thing my peers were doing, and so I did it. I had no idea what my ability was. After all, I was a high school dropout. Like the Army, I threw myself at it, not knowing if I could succeed, but again, determined not to quit. It was about that time that I met a beautiful woman. Her name was Mary, and I fell in love with her, and I still thank God for her every day. And Ken continues 
with what this woman, this beautiful woman, Mary, did for him. She lived in my hometown in Rhode Island, and we were the same age, but she acted like an adult. And she didn't do the same kind of things that I did. I needed to grow up, and she provided a great example. The Army had laid some groundwork, but it was Mary who really helped me change. After college, I moved back to Rhode Island, where Mary and I were married shortly after. The economy was bad, but my self-doubt was receding, and with Mary's support, I applied to law school and was accepted. After my first year, I was on the Law Review. I graduated from law school, took the bar exam, and passed. My first job was at a small law firm in Rhode Island where I met a wonderful man who became a mentor to me. He had been in politics, and he introduced me to a guy who wanted to run for governor. So I met with Don Kachiri over a BLT at a local restaurant, and after a few minutes I thought, this is exactly the kind of person that should be governor. He was a long shot, and he didn't have a lot of help, and I knew I was going to put in a lot of hours as his campaign manager, but I agreed to do it, and we got started, and he won. It was historic. I became his chief of staff, and... I went on to run his successful re-election a few years later. From there, I went to a big law firm. That was people's expectation at the time. That's what you did. And I did it, but I only did it for the money. Remember this. When you do something solely for the money, it's rarely worth the money. So true. And he had escaped living for the alcohol. And that didn't end well. And he was learning that just doing something for dollars, well, that's never going to end well either. Thankfully, Ken escaped the trap of living for money. And here's the final portion of his remarkable turning point story. I went back to the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. I got back into politics. I helped win several governor's races across the country. I held senior roles in national political organizations. I managed budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd never imagined the possibility of any of these successes in my adolescence. I even managed a presidential campaign. Despite great opportunities and experiences, some successes and achievements in my life, I spent a lot of my life not believing in myself but I still found a life. I found a meaningful purpose. And I found the greatest thing I have, a beautiful wife and three kids. So after everything I've learned, I'm going to try to give you a couple of pieces of advice. First and foremost, at any point in your life, make good choices. I learned that lesson the hard way. If you're considering something and you have that twinge that it might be wrong, it's probably really wrong. And I would suggest you don't do it. Or at least really take a long pause and think through what might be the matter. Because making the wrong choices can haunt you. Wrong choices can cause regrets and sorrow. And trust me, those feelings are hard to shake. The right choices, on the other hand, will serve you well your whole life. Second, don't waste time worrying about what other people think. 
My self-doubt drove me to bad decisions when I was younger, followed by lifelong regrets. Be yourself. Other people will respect you for it. Third, be fearless. Believe in yourself, trust yourself, and make your own decisions. We are all stronger, smarter, and more capable than we think. Once you have that knowledge, it's powerful. Some of you are going to experience self-inflicted difficulties during your lives. Some of you are going to doubt yourselves. But you should know that if you decide to follow those pieces of advice, you can overcome anything to find happiness. And such good advice and hard-won wisdom from Ken McKay, who turned his life around thanks to a sergeant, a first sergeant, to a bride. And by the way, that guy at the furniture store who said, son, you need to be going to college. You know, all these things we can do for people, we don't even know it. But we can. The power of our words, the power of our example, the power of our leadership. And thank you for sharing that story with us, Ken. And if you have a turning point story, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Another one of our favorites was Bill Bachman's Turning Point story. He left a partnership in a law firm in Washington, D.C., and not just any law firm, Williams & Connolly, one of the great law firms in this country. And he did it all because something was missing in his life, and he decided to coach Division III sports at Catholic U University. And my goodness, at Catholic University, and what a difference in his life. This is Lee Habib, Turning Point, Ken McKay's story. Your stories here on Our American Stories. stories and today we bring you a story our field correspondent faith picked up while she was back home in california and here is the first part of that piece kathleen broder grew up in los angeles california and has lived in california her whole life she is a 69 year old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own but kathleen She's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. 
And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession? Well, it began with running. Yeah, I was always very hyperactive. You know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, after a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I, I got back into it. And then um, I started... Um, I think really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago, I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met, and we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years. And then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, it's just about time to settle down. And I said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. <laughs> we had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together. And then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth. But, you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, and, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then we got married. We had kids. We had so... Two years later, we had our first, and then we had another one, and then we had another one, and we just kept having them. So, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre. <laughs> so it's really funny, you know, like stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area. And I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit, so... Yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music, and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults, that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So, you know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled in and got married. So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs. Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started. I started realizing that a lot of my friends you know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping. And this was about eight or nine years ago. And we saw this thing called, I had never seen a triathlon. And I couldn't believe it. I, I saw it, and I said, I'm going to do that. And I, I was talking to all the people, well, what comes first, and why is it in that order? And I was just kept, I was fascinated. And so um, 
I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but you know, real, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year, I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU, and they were starting a triathlon club, and so I started working out with them, and of course, and then I had to get a better bike, and it just took over. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't retired yet, but I, school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing, I don't really have time to go to work. I have too many workouts, and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, so I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought, okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones. I started doing the little sprint triathlons. Those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the World Championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. Does this woman take any rest days? But I really listen to my body, and I can tell, like I did a, a century, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday, and it was very hilly in Solvang. And um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain, I was going to run on Sunday, and I didn't. And on Monday, I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones, one in the morning at 6 and one at um, 7 o'clock at night. And I was supposed to run in the middle of the day, and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get 
get back. The days that I take off, every once in a while, you know, life happens. Somebody gets sick or I get sick or that might be a day that I, that I take off. But I don't work it into my schedule. I either, there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but um, sometimes like um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't, I probably won't do anything else except run. And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder, 30-mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation. So you work out like two or three times a day sometimes? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. <laughs> you don't let yourself? I don't, no, I, well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, 6 in the morning. And then I meet my friend at, uh, afterwards at 7.30 at the park. And we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... Um, <laughs> I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights, I have track. And then Thursday morning, I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day. Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two to three times a day, I like constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am and I really try. I really try to catch it before I get starving, or else I'll eat something, you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything, and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods, and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. But I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working. If I'm coming up on a race, 
A couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that of the stuff in your system. You know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like you know white rice, and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat、um, any heavy meats or anything like that, and especially the night before. And then in the morning, I have you know I have the banana and oatmeal, and I usually eat on the way to the race. And you know, there's just certain things that you do. For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions. Well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is. The last really stupid thing I did was、um, it was at the Oceanside seventy point three last year, and the wait to get into the water was so long, and I had a water bottle with me because sometimes you know you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything, and you're in there for a long time. So I was, so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line, and then I was swimming. But you can't, unless you stop and relax, you can't be. <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me, and、um, and it, I just, I, I just died. So you know, eventually I got out and it was okay. But、um, because you had was, to pee. Yeah, it was because you can't really, you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming, and so you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head, and so <laughs> that was really awful. That was the worst thing. Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her, because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame. It's funny because even my swim coach would say, he'll point to me and say, "See the woman? She's a real athlete." You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But you know, I really don't think about it, and I don't really compare myself. And the and I do know other people who are you know my age and much faster. But I do know there's not very many of them, you know. And there aren't. And the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this 70 to 74. That's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend, I'm doing a try, and I'm the only person in my age category. So it's like kind of relaxing. It's like, all right, this is great. But you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know. I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy. I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids, people my kids' age. You know that that kind of thing, and that's who I. That's who I'm with. I really enjoy, and I think, I think, I think they're. I'm like them, but when they're looking at me, they're looking at their grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty funny, but I just enjoy that. And the older people that do, I do work out with. I mean, a lot of them are in their 60s. You know, there are some. We're all kind of the same. You know, we all enjoy being with all ages, and and、um, you know, we're pretty much. You know, we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are. Very, very competitive, and you know, like killer, and you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us, have been 
very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something. You know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of, out of the blue. You know, you've done something for several years. Or it's a personality type. I think it's per a lot of it's personality. When I'm out there, it's like, you know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old and stuff. Especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend when we did this century in solving, it was it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carry or just walking their bikes up these hills. And I mean, I was in my you know my easiest gear, but I'm like, mm, you know, good morning, good morning. And I'm still going in there and passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys. They power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running, you know, riding 100 miles. <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by Well, they're stupid. Yourself. Yeah, yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, and a lot of them are heavy. Some, you can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong, especially in the swim. My gosh, huge people that are so fast in the water. But bike on a hill and you're heavy, you got to work a lot harder. And then the run... So. But of course, not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen, though, she's a pretty intense person and it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia. But she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly. But of course, she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she's able to do. I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing. Because I do, I love to play cards, I love to play board games, so I can do that. But I would just want to have nice people, active people, not, not real old people. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said, um, that I work out, my training partner said, that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group groups and I have my triathlon groups and I have my swim groups and I have my running groups and there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to hang out with and stuff. Yeah, and you're fortunate because like to have your body in such good like, yeah. condition that it's not, you know, breaking down on you. Yeah, and you know what? If it does break down, I'm ready. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can do I can do other things. I mean, you know, if I broke my leg you know, I've had to come back from injuries and stuff, so I don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world. I would, I would just do something else. But you know, I enjoy that. That's why I'm, I feel fortunate now. So this is just something you like doing for it's now. Just, yeah. And what a great piece! Thanks so much for that, Faith. And 
Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete. I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, I have a hard time being around people my own age. Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you, Kathleen. You'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories. stories where we love to tell great stories about music sports love death business one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things americans do for one another in the world which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners the philanthropy roundtable the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity protecting philanthropic freedom and assisting givers in achieving their goals and the host of the series is none other than carl zinsmeister their head of publications and a modern renaissance man. And we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy, and here is a story from that great collection. When I was in college in the late 1970s and early 80s, I passed through New York City a lot. And at that time, Central Park was a great place to go and get mugged. Not such a great place for relaxing, enjoying nature, playing sports, or refreshing your spirits. The gardens were overgrown and disorderly, the buildings and paths were decayed, the fountains weren't working, much of the grass had died and blown away. Graffiti and other vandalization was everywhere, and vagrants and gangs dominated many corners of the park. When you live jammed into a few square miles, packed with tall buildings and millions of other people, public parks are important for recharging your personal batteries. But the decrepit state of many city parks in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, not only in New York, but in many places across the country, made it hard for citizens to enjoy the outdoors. Crummy parks were one more push that led people to abandon cities and move out to suburbs. Despite long commutes, they could at least enjoy some leafy green out there. For those of you too young to imagine Central Park as a wasteland, here's a little reminder from New Yorker Doug Blonsky that I'm not exaggerating about how bad things had gotten. I'll never forget getting off the bus at you know, 90th and 5th and walking down the bridal trail and seeing more rats than people, and then walking down to the Great Lawn, which was referred to as the Great Dust Bowl, and going by Turtle Pond up to the castle, and Turtle Pond was filled with dead fish, and it literally stunk. And then the castle just covered with graffiti, wrapped in razor wire, and completely closed off to the public. It was amazing. In 1976, Richard Gilder, 
the founder of a brokerage firm and a leading philanthropist in New York City, decided dramatic change was needed and that he should step up to help create it. He offered to pay for a study on how to rescue Central Park. He and other philanthropists he recruited put up the first gifts in what became millions of dollars of private donations for park restoration. But there was a catch, a huge, vital catch. The donors insisted that the city also hand over the car keys. They weren't going to just ladle lots more money into the dysfunctional government bureaucracy that had let the park fall apart in the first place. Their central insight was that what the park was really missing wasn't money, but sensible, hard-headed management. They established a nonprofit Central Park Conservancy, which was free of the crazy union rules and city budget shenanigans that had gotten the park into such trouble. And they convinced the city to let this conservancy take over real, long-term management responsibility for restoring the park and then operating it on a daily basis. With this ability to make sure resources were spent effectively, this private charitable operating organization quickly engineered an impressive string of successes. Order and beauty were returned to the park. 90% of the crimes taking place when the conservancy started up were eliminated. Impressive plantings and rebuildings commenced. Soon, the number of annual visitors to the park began to soar, from 12 million in the early 1980s to more than 40 million today. These clear triumphs allowed the Central Park Conservancy to raise more than $700 million in donations over the next four decades from grateful, enthusiastic philanthropists. As soon as the effectiveness of this new model for creating and operating parks became obvious to the public, charitable park conservancies began to spread like wildfire. Citizens began to get involved in reviving public parks all across the country. Today, half of all major cities rely on private conservancies to manage and fund crucial parks. And the result is that we are now in a golden age of urban greenways. There are newly improved or created jewels everywhere you look. Piedmont Park in Atlanta, Shelby Farms in Memphis, the Olmstead Parks in Louisville, Buffalo Bayou in Houston, St. Louis's Forest Park, the restoration of our National Mall in D.C., projects in Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and other parts of New York City, all of these modeled directly on the charitable rescue of Central Park. And hundreds of exciting new urban parks are being created using the private conservancy management model. A $350 million oasis is springing up in Tulsa with money from philanthropist George Kaiser. Discovery Green has been carved into central Houston thanks to generous givers. Private donors powered the amazingly popular High Line Park in lower Manhattan, Chicago's similar 606 Trail, and other trail parks in Atlanta and elsewhere. Clyde Warren Park in Dallas is another brand new donor-driven haven that was cleverly created right in the heart of the Arts District by roofing over a below-grade expressway and then installing a series of gardens, lawns, promenades, fountains, and dog and kid zones. This new park unites the two sides of the Arts District that had been cut in half by the highway and thus has dramatically enlivened downtown Dallas. I was in the park last week and was astonished to see how heavily it is being used by everybody. Teens, elderly couples, pet owners, newspaper readers, badminton teams, wine sippers, moms doing yoga, musicians on outdoor stages, chess players, toddlers running through sprinklers, you name it. It was as jammed with revelers as I've ever seen Bryant Park in New York. Love Park in Philadelphia, or other famously popular outdoor sites. Now that it's open, I can't imagine downtown Dallas without it. 
None of this would have happened without substantial charitable donations, and even more important, an insistence on private management that gets around the municipal featherbedding and misrule that caused so many public parks to fall into decline a generation ago. Thanks to donors, you are living in the golden age of urban parks. So get out and enjoy one. And thanks for that, Paul. And it is so true. When I was growing up, Central Park was a place to go and get mugged. And testimony to what the private interest did was that visitors now are four times more likely to stroll into that park and enjoy it. What a great story. As always, our Sweet Charity Series brought to us by the great people at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Muddy Waters, and that's The Last Waltz, directed by Martin Scorsese, Dr. John, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ronnie Hawkins, but you knew the man who stole the show was Muddy Waters. And Jesse's a big, my boy Jesse here is a big blues fan, and we've got a piece on Muddy Waters. He was an American blues musician who is often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues, Muddy grew up on Stovall Plantation near Clarksdale, Mississippi, just about an hour from Oxford, where we broadcast from. And we bring you, on this day, his birth, his story. Muddy Waters was born McKinley Morganfield on April 4th, 1915, in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, a rural town on the Mississippi River. He was given the moniker Muddy Waters because he played in the swampy puddles of the Mississippi River as a boy. When Waters was just three years old, his mother, Bertha Jones, died, and he was subsequently sent to Clarksdale to live with his grandmother, Deliah Jones. Waters began to play the harmonica around the age of five and became quite good. He received his first guitar at the age of 17 and taught himself to play by listening to recordings of Mississippi blues legends like Charlie Patton. First with the harmonica, as I said, what the kids begin to the water from the harmonica I like. And I uh, picked up the guitar after listening to a great old guy by the name of Sunhouse. And, and when I was, became 17 years old, you heard of Saturday Night Fish Fries. Uh, but we call them, used to have uh, um, supper to go to the juke house or whatever. They had different guys come in from all over, like uh, playing these, these, at these parties. Guys like Charlie Patton and, and the Mississippi Sheiks and, and Sunhouse, all the kind of people I learned with them. Although Waters spent countless hours working as a sharecropper at a cotton plantation, he found time to entertain folks around the town with his music. It wasn't a, a going easy thing, because uh, we was doing cause like sharecropping. I raised up like a sharecropper, you know. Worked on the plantation where we raised cotton and corn and beans and all that jive. And, and it wasn't exactly slavery time, but it wasn't, it wasn't really good time, you know. I mean, we had a good time. I, 
I learned all, all, all of my music then through that spirit. So it was wonderful t- for me to, I guess, to live that, and then I know what I was trying to learn. In 1941, he joined the Celias Green Tent Show and began to travel. A lot of it came right out the field where I learned and, and doing my work on the plantation because uh, I grew up to be able to drive tractors and trucks and before I left, that was in my late 20s when I left Mississippi. As he began to gain recognition, his ambition grew. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I'm going to be the greatest man alive. But now I'm a man, way past 21. Then, after Alan Lomax and John Work, who were archivists and researchers for the Library of Congress Field Recordings Project, caught wind of Waters' unique style, they sought him out to make this recording. Late over the evening, child, I feel like blowing my home. I woke up this morning find my, my little baby gone. Late on in the evening, man, man, I feel like, like blowing my home. Well, I woke up this morning, baby, find my little baby gone. In 1943, Muddy Waters finally picked up and headed to Chicago, Illinois, where music was shaping a generation. The following year, his uncle gave him an electric guitar. It was with this guitar that he was able to develop the legendary style that transformed the rustic blues of the Mississippi with the urban vibe of the big city. Working at a paper mill by day, Waters was sweeping the blues scene by night. By 1946, he had grown so popular that he'd begun making recordings for big record companies such as RCA, Columbia, and Aristocrat. It wasn't until 1950, when Aristocrat became Chess Records, that Waters' career really began to take off. Well, my mother told my father. Rolling Stone, one of his singles, became so popular that it went on to influence the name of the major music magazine, as well as one of the most famous rock bands to date, the Rolling Stones. He's gonna be a rolling stone. Showing up, be the rolling stone. Showing up, be the rolling stone. Well, by 1951, Muddy Waters had established a full band with his Otis Spann on piano, Little Walter on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on second guitar, and Elgin Evans on drums. The band's recordings were increasingly popular in New Orleans, Chicago, and the Delta region in the United States. But it wasn't until 1958, when the group brought their electric blues sound to England, that Muddy Waters became an international star. After the English tour, Muddy Waters' fan base expanded and began to catch the attention of the rock and roll community. His performance at the 1960 Newport Jazz Festival was a particularly pivotal point in his career as it caught the attention of a new fan base. Waters was able to adapt the changing times and his electric blues sound to fit in well with the love generation. Now the war going on Trouble in the east 
Some folk are thieves, but it won't last. The world is turning much too fast. Sun got mad, shot pop up down. New troublemaker gets coming down. Where are you gonna run to? And where are you gonna hide? Where are you gonna run? What you gonna hide? Waters continued to record with rock musicians throughout the 1960s and 70s and won his first Grammy Award in 1971 from the album They Call Me Muddy Waters. After his 30-year run with Chess Records, he went his separate way in 1975, suing the record company for royalties after his final release with them, Muddy Waters' Woodstock album. Waters signed on with Blue Sky label after the split. He then captivated audiences with his appearance in The Band's Farewell Performance, known as The Last Waltz an exceptionally star-studded affair that was released as a film by Martin Scorsese in 1978. I'm a full-grown man Man I'm a natural lover's man Man I'm a rolling stone By the end of his lifetime, Muddy Waters had garnered six Grammys as well as countless other honors. He died after suffering a heart attack on April 30th, 1983, in Downers Grove, Illinois. Since his death, Muddy Waters' contribution to the music world has continued to gain recognition. In 1987, Waters was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Five years later, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences awarded the musician a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. Some of the most recognizable names in music have named Muddy Waters as their single greatest influence, including Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Johnny Winter. Wasn't that a man? Muddy Waters! Here's Eric Clapton. Most of the players that came to Chicago that were, that were really vital came from what well, they call the Mississippi Delta, the Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters. They played in bands and they played uh, in clubs. They had actually a way to become sophisticated, I think, and had competition. The guys would come up and they'd go and visit Muddy in his club and they'd see how sharp he was and the kind of suits he was wearing and the kind of money he was getting and they'd have to revise their act and they'd speed, it would speed up the process and bring out the best, the absolute best in everybody. I would have been 18 or 19 and I got a call from this guy Mike Vernon. He said, there's a great opportunity for you to come and play with Muddy and Otis. I tried my best to be cool but I was just in bits. All I can remember is them dancing. I remember them because they, I played, we, we all did it in, it was over in about an hour. It was so fast. And these guys had suits on that were like silver silk, big suits. And, and that when they were listening to the playback, they danced and they held their trousers up. So that, you know, they, they were big trousers and they would do these kind of fancy foot steps holding their trousers up like skirts, you know. And it was just breathtaking. He meant a great deal to me, and his music still does, probably more than anybody else's. It was the first, really, that got to me, and it still is the most important music in my life today, is the music of Muddy Waters. Though Muddy Waters' life lasted from April 4th, 1915 to April 30th, 1983, passing away at the age of 70, his music influenced the blues and rock world for an eternity. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. 
Great job on that, Jesse. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of McKinley Morganfield, a.k.a. Muddy Waters. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear this and all the other things that we do. Before I be your dog. Time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Walniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages compared to 28% with traditional counselors. Every week, Deb joins us for storytelling about marriage, and today we're going to start with a story about vacations. And when we think about vacations, we often think of family vacations or guy trips or girl trips. But we're about to bring you a story about a different and rather unique kind of vacation. It's brought to us by the terrific website IBelieveInLove.com and by their contributor Carrie Schmidt, a wife and a mom of two daughters in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Carrie. One evening, when I must have looked pretty haggard, My husband said some of the most loving words I've ever heard. What if I take a week of vacation from work and you go stay with your parents so you can have a break? He asked. Really? You think that could work? I responded as I racked my brain trying to decide for myself. I think you should go on vacation. You haven't had a break for over three years. There's always going to be a reason not to do it. If we can possibly pull it off, we should try he encouraged. That was all the prompting I needed. For the next two months, I planned and daydreamed about how wonderful it would be to decide for myself what I wanted to do with my days. After pouring over the calendar, we settled on a five-day break just before Christmas. How did the break go? Well, as you may have suspected, we got some great stories out of it. The first text I received from my husband who rarely cooks, read, Adventures with Daddy Day 1. Set off the smoke detector trying to cook eggs. Others included, Do we have a lemon zester? What do you use to grease a pan? The kitchen is starting to smell a little funky. When do the dishwashing fairies normally come? We're really low on milk. Where is the best place to get more? There were also multiple pictures of the baby falling asleep in various parts of our house because Daddy hadn't recognized she was tired and needed a nap. However, my favorite story is from day four, when he answered the phone with a grumpy, hello. What's wrong? I asked. I'm locked in the bathroom, trying to get a moment of peace, and then the phone rings. I erupted in laughter. I can't make this up. He then proceeded to direct our three-year-old through her chore list and identify that the 13-month-old 
was playing in the dog's water bowl and convinced her to stop all through the locked door. Impressive and hilarious. My side of the break was very relaxing. I went to bed when I was tired, woke up when I was ready, watched a movie, ran some errands, read and did some sewing that was on my list. The biggest change was getting to operate on my own timeline, and it was wonderful. My husband also gave me a beautiful card filled with words of appreciation and a spa treatment for me. I felt so loved and so encouraged. So why did he decide to take on two little girls and a dog by himself? Because he recognized that I needed a break. He saw me. He got it. The 24-7 job was wearing me out, and I needed some time to refresh. He chose to selflessly contribute to the solution. When we see someone in need, we can respond in one of two ways. We can ignore the problem and hope it goes away, or we can contribute to the solution. Which is more loving? That's kind of obvious, but sometimes it's difficult to choose to love those who are closest to us. We can take them for granted instead of setting our own desires aside. I'm sure he would have rather completed some of the projects on his list with that time off work, but he selflessly chose to put my needs ahead of his wants. It will be interesting to see how these five days in my shoes changes the dynamics of our family going forward. I know I will be excited for another mommy vacation if the opportunity is ever presented again. In the meantime, this has also helped me reflect more on my husband's wants and needs and form a plan of action to try to help him achieve this. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Who is your family's weakest link, and how can you help them get stronger? Wow, and then we're going to be bringing in Deb in a second, but we're all looking at each other going, oh, man, I hate this guy. He's making us look bad. But I think, uh, well, you're laughing, Deb, because you know, and I think men listening to this right now are going, oh, I know that's the right thing to do. I know that's the decent thing to do, and I haven't done it. So, Deb wow. Wolniak, you join us now. What do you think of this? This is just, frankly, it's just it's so good, and it's so 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 decent, and how many guys do you know that would do something like this? And what what does a guy learn from this, Deb? Well, this is this is good. I appreciate your heartfelt, you know, concern, like reflecting on your life. But let's just flip it around. You might have women listening to this that go, "I wish my husband could hear this story because this is what I need." And how do I bring this up in a sensitive way? You know, because I don't want to put him on the spot, and yep. I'd like this to be a gift and not a demand. Yep. <laughs> And so uh, I'm going to throw this out to the women that are in that boat as well. Um, If you are that person, I want you um, to do this for your husband, even though you feel you might need it. I know it sounds like a stretch, but believe me, it will come back around. Um, There might be something that he's been working really hard at as well, and he's kind of at the end of his rope. Give him the opportunity, even if it's a day, you know, it doesn't have to be a week, and let him do something special. Maybe give him a gift card to go to a sports store or um, give him time to just go fish. He may have the equipment. He just needs to get his worms and just go out and just sit in a boat and be with his thoughts. But as you do that, you will trigger that um, example And he, if he's smart, will connect the dots and say, hey, I want to do the same for you. Now, for those husbands who haven't done it yet, don't feel guilty. Now is your opportunity. I think you should take advantage of it. If it's not the mommy vacation 
what does fit into your schedule that may let her go with a friend to get a cup of coffee and come back. Some folks can do a micro vacation that might be just, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of while maybe some young moms need to come back and breastfeed. So just getting that time alone is extremely helpful. And you know what's fun about couples is there's a lot of times this resiliency. You heard this lady, three years and she hasn't had a break? Oh, my gosh. So she had a week. She came back refreshed. But you also heard how she's not going not to just sit for three years. She's going to proactively schedule time with her husband so that he has that opportunity and vice versa. I think you need to plan that into your family structure in order to create healthy space for your heart and mind to rest. So you can be the best parent and the best spouse or significant other. So that's actually really encouraging. I like the story. I love the story, Deb. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little about foster care because it's National Foster Care Month. And so what happens in a family, in a marriage, when you make this decision to go down the foster care route? Because it's a big one. And it's like the adoption route itself. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all of our Marriage on the Mind segments. Go to the Topics button, take a look. All of our This Days in History, right down the line. They've got to be about 85 of them now. And our Marriage on the Mind segments run the gamut from drugs to pain to long-term marriages to, well, just about everything we've covered. And we're going to continue to do so with Deb Wolniak right after these messages. Our Marriage on the Mind segment continues. And now we continue with our Marriage on the Mind segment, and we love to hit topics that cover just about every aspect and dimension of a marriage. By the way, I was talking to a friend the other day who had just, they had just lost a child and uh, to, a, to a, a really tragic uh, and a, a car accident. And, and the marriage, I don't know how strong it is, actually. And we were talking about the movie Ordinary People, and I think they're heading down a bad course, Deb, um, because as you know, and we've talked about often, tragedy can often show fissures in a marriage. And if you remember that movie with Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore, they had lost their son in a boating accident. And the movie was all about that marriage and how they handled it. And if you remember, the marriage didn't make it. Um, uh, it actually tore them apart. And uh, just, you know, just a second before we dig into the the adoption, because I think often this can happen with adoption, too. You think it's an easy road. The child comes in, the new child, and there's an existing family. And it's not always an easy road in adoption. And it's not always an easy road losing that child either. Just talk about stress as it relates to marriage, Deb, because in the end, these are stress events in the end. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the stressors you mentioned were the shock kind of stressors that are those surprises that no one is expecting that are tragedies. And then the other one is a more of a planned stressor where you do your best you can as a parent to take calculated, a meaningful relationship building risks, knowing that no child is perfect and no marriage is perfect. But in, in both cases, there are levels of stress that can affect a marriage. Uh, one thing in, in those cases that has a common thread is I've always, always said build a team of people around you that are going to support you through the process. If it's on the grieving side, please get involved with the Grief Share program or community-based uh, programs that are going to help you transition through the waves of grief and loss. And you need to honestly process those and go through that in order to continue um, to build your relationship because it does kind of create that explosion hole in your heart and you have to try to rediscover love again. In the other case, you're building up the opportunity of growth of new love, almost like a tree um, continues to sprout a branch. You know, you want to graft that branch into your family tree and there's some beautiful opportunities there, even though sometimes it can be hard. Yep, indeed. So let me, let me do this. We're going to be talking about a group called Faith Bridge, and it's a Christian fostering, foster care agency that approaches churches about how many children need foster care homes in their local area. And they've had some pretty remarkable success, Deb. And one of the reasons why is they have a sort of unique community of care model where folks surround the foster family with tutoring help, babysitting, mentoring. Like you said there, the team. It's a team approach, and, and you need to do these things. Nationally, by the way, almost 50% of the foster families in this country drop out every year because they feel overwhelmed. And today we meet Ryan and Stephanie Martin, who became a foster family through Faith Bridge and their story. And like so many of these stories, was driven by the heart of the mother. My wife had had a it had been a passion of hers for a number of years, and she had actually been praying for me um, to to just consider doing something and we were introduced to faith bridge through some friends attended an orientation and i was i was actually wrecked by the message and so we collectively although my wife before i was ready uh, she was ready long before me and she she prepared me through her prayer and uh, we we at that point decided that this was something that we needed to do collectively as a family well i've always had a heart for children who do not have a home Um, really from since I was a teenager, I really feel like God just laid that on my heart. Um, But through the years we had our biological children and our home was full, or so we thought. But that just never left, that feeling never left that God gave me. And um, so I did, I started mentioning it to Ryan and he said, we're good, we're full. Um, But I really just spent some time praying for that because I, I, I told the Lord I either I had this tug on my heart and I either, um, you've either got to change the tug or you've got to help my husband join me in that. And so over time, that's what he did. And these were clearly people of faith, but my goodness, secular folks listening, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've bumped into this in my life, Deb. One person wants a small family, one wants a big family. One <laughs> wants to adopt kids and one doesn't. So let's just say Stephanie continued to want to have these adopted kids in her home and Ryan didn't. How do we negotiate these things, Deb, and how do we walk through these, these things? And this is what I meant about how sometimes adoption can create a stress 
By the way, Ryan might not have known that Stephanie wanted to adopt. Stephanie might not have even known she had wanted to adopt when they first married. These things just come to folks. How, how does this create stress in the marriage? How do they negotiate this if, for instance, the couples aren't on the same page on something this big? Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, this form of bringing children into a family, whether they're of your own or foster care or adoption, is a big life-changing decision. It is a lifetime commitment, except for those that are in foster care to help with transitional living for a child that might be in transition and going back to either their birth parent or um, a new family. But um, one of the things that will help you navigate is to not only continue to research and make yourself the best, most aware potential parent or new parent, um, if that's the case. But in a lot of cases, as you check out agencies, they provide wonderful social workers or experts, counselors, et cetera, who uh, their job is to educate you and help qualify you um, to make sure you're ready for that transition, um, offer some continued classes, and maybe even some counseling just to make sure that you both are, are ready and on the same page. With things like finances, children, et cetera, even getting married, I just want to encourage everybody to try to be on that same page. You're not going to succeed if you have a foundation in your family that's split. It's almost like building a house on an uneven foundation. Every decision after that is just going to be very difficult. So for those of of faith, I strongly encourage you to pray. This is something that, you know, you need to discern God's heart, and um, he'll know your heart. He'll know your desire. And I'm just going to encourage you guys to come together, who's ever listening to this, come together in prayer, seek wise counsel, really study the benefits and the challenges of the decision you're making. Also, if you have kids currently in the house, um, talk to that expert about birth order and ages. Talk about your family's environment. Where will that child or children stay within the home? Do they have their own space that they'll feel invited into that they can, you know, kind of work on, you know, things when they need to be quiet themselves? Or is it more of a common area? Are they sharing a room with a brother or sister that um, is currently in the family? So, you know, there's a lot of questions there, and they do need to be answered well. Um, the, the neat thing is, as you come down that road and together you decide this is a good solution for our family, you're going to be amazed at how wonderful it is to have the opportunity to pour into that child's life, especially for foster parents, because this child has probably gone through a trauma that they didn't expect, didn't want, and yet somebody's taking the time to reach out to them. And this could be a critical juncture for someone who is looking at the world like, I don't know what to expect anymore, I'm scared. And you could be that, you fill in the gap on not only loving that child, but in some cases even adopting that child. And what a huge compliment to that child, that you would love them um, in such a way that you gave them the space to not only go through this process, but to feel love again and attach to a family. So that's a big deal. There is no doubt it's a big deal. And Ryan and Stephanie, it sounds like, are on the same page. And you were saying over and over again that if the couple's not on the same page on these big decisions, trouble lurks, problems lurk. So foster care, uh, being foster parents, being adoptive parents, um, these are big, big decisions together. And Deb, uh, just quickly, you know, this is a, this touches you personally, this space. Uh, talk mm-hmm. about that and why. 
Yeah. So uh, my husband and I, Bob, adopted two children from Russia, ages two and four. And believe it or not, they're now 15 and 17. So we've had quite a few years and seasons with them. But even approaching that first moment when we said, hey, I think we want to adopt, once we made that decision, we were on par. But literally, it took us 10 years between the amount of money we had to save to finding the right program and making sure that we were prepared and waiting for those children. Once we finished, we had another four years to wait for those children. That's a long time. And um, that was interesting because that was a time when Russia was really open. Um, What is also important to remember is as you adopt those children, know their cultural um, background and maybe the trauma they've gone through because as you go through this child and grow with them, each adoptive child, and I can even say this for myself, I'm a domestic adopted child. Only after a week of my life, I was adopted into a wonderful family. And, you know, we all go through learning stages, even around age eight. Who am I? Am I loved? And am I accepted? What happened to my birth family? And does my my family now really love me. What does that mean? Um, Don't be afraid of those questions from your child. That's a normal process of learning and understanding self. And this is really, really important as they grow and know that there are going to be points where things can cycle back around or reoccur. There might be cognitive delays. That's really amazing. And I'm going to tell you, Really hang in there with your teachers and your schools as you work through these things because, again, it's that team environment telling that child, you know what, I know sometimes it's hard, but we're going to get through this together. You bet. As always, great advice from Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach, our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment, and we're talking about foster care. We love talking about adoption. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. 